Thank you for listening to the Trinity Podcast. My name is Marty Reardon. I'm your host. And in this episode, it's simply a reposting of audio from a previous members meeting in which our lead pastor, Chris McDaniel, and our education pastor, Ashley Matthews, discuss in greater detail Trinity's convictions around same-sex relationships. Thanks so much for listening. We are so thankful to have you here, uh, that you've come out um, in the middle of a busy work week, and specifically that you've come out uh, during a, a non-scheduled uh, rhythm for our membership community. Um, this is a, a special meeting uh, to address an issue that has been, um, I think, uh, addressed in all kinds of ways and yet not specifically in this way. And you may ask uh, the question, why, why would we worship before uh, talking about something like same-sex attraction in the church and specifically same-sex attraction in this church? And our reason for that is because I don't think we do this conversation or really any provocative or challenging conversation justice unless we realize that it, we engage these conversations as a worshiping people. Um, I'm so proud of um, our church, and I have been for a long time. I've said this to people who um, visit or people where I encounter them well outside the confines of Trinity. I say I would go to this church if I weren't the pastor of this church. And uh, I haven't always been able to say that as a vocational pastor. And I know that a lot of people who've worked in vocational ministry would say that there are times where you just go because you get paid to go there and you are compelled to go there or you have a heart for people but you don't love the place very much. That's not true of this church. And one of the things that I love and I think our whole leadership team uh, truly loves about Trinity is the fact that we are a people who come from all sorts of places and have all sorts of experiences. And we ask you when you come to this church to be willing to uh, come into environments like this, environments that will challenge us, environments where maybe the person sitting next to you doesn't see the issue that we're going to be talking about tonight or in another way, uh, the same way that you do. And I think there's a gift for us to remember that when we come to provocative moments like this, and there's just no getting around it, right? In our wider cultural context, um, this is a, a polarizing moment for the church and for people in general. Um, we need to remember as a Christian community that we're a worshiping family and that we can come into these spaces and we can ask for the grace of God and the help of God so that we can truly hear and truly listen to what the Spirit is saying, but also hear and listen to what we're saying back and forth. So what I would like to do right now is just ask for the Holy Spirit's presence, um, or really I guess what we're asking is for an awareness of the Holy Spirit's presence, because the Bible is very clear that when we gather in the name of God, which we have done so tonight, that the Lord is with us. And so let's ask for an awareness of his presence, and then Ashley and I are just going to jump right in. Uh, there's going to be a lot of content coming at you tonight from us. Um, so it'll be in some ways maybe like drinking water from a fire hydrant, and we just don't know any other way to do that. So we're going to begin this conversation, but, but before we do that, we're going we're gonna to pray. Holy Spirit, we ask you now to make us aware of your presence. I'm aware, God, that for many of us in this room, uh, there is a palatable anxiety of people... For all kinds of reasons, we come to you tonight and, Lord, we just, if we're honest, we're, we're nervous. We're nervous about having these conversations here. We're maybe nervous about whether or not it's really safe to have conversations 
like this in the church. And we acknowledge, Lord, there is a reason why it's hard to have these conversations. And the church, we confess, hasn't always been a very safe place to talk about issues of critical, fundamental importance. And so, Holy Spirit, right now, we ask for an awareness. For those of us in this room who are anxious, we pray that you would penetrate that anxiety and that you would give us an awareness of your peace, your presence. God, for all of us, we pray that we would be able to leave the checklist, the to-do list, the busyness, right where it is and trust that you could meet us here in this place as a worshiping family and that you would help us. That you would help us here at Trinity. In Jesus' name, amen. So I ended that prayer by saying that you would help us here at Trinity. I think it's important for us here at the very beginning as we lay a foundation where we're going to go tonight. I think on your little cards that Brad's handed out, we've given you a very detailed outline. (laughs) It'll help you know that we're moving somewhere. Our purpose tonight is not to answer questions for the whole worldwide church. Our purpose is to answer questions for this church. There is a sense of particularity whenever conversations like this happen within a local church. We've always said about our membership that our membership for us uh, is a sort of place where we roll up our sleeves and we have kitchen table conversations. We've used that phrase forever here at Trinity, and by that what we really mean is The further into the life of the church one goes, it's almost like entering intimate spaces in a home. Um, If I don't know you, um, I'll meet you at the gate of my picket fence. Um, I built that fence to stop people who would solicit for business purposes. And we'll meet you at the gate um, and we'll say, hey, Um, if we're friends and we're dropping off for our kids and stuff, we'll maybe meet you at the front door or inside the foyer. But people who really work their way into the life of our family end up sitting around the kitchen table at the end of the day, laughing with a glass of wine in their hands, talking about life. We've always said that for us as a membership, we want to create some kitchen space table uh, conversations. And I think this is one of those opportunities for us to just be transparent about issues that we're all thinking about and to let you know not what all Christians everywhere should be doing or thinking, but what we're doing and thinking here at this church. We recognize that this is a very polarizing dialogue in our wider culture. So our purpose tonight is simply to offer some clarity about where we are as a leadership team and where we're going to be in the space we're going to occupy as a church on the issue of same-sex attraction in the church, and also to begin to speculate prayerfully about what it is that we want to see happen as far as life together. I think there's clarity, but then the real work begins when we say, well, how do we walk alongside one another in community as we begin to try to be pastorally present to one another? So that's where we're going to go tonight. I want to give you just a little bit of a look into our learning process. Um, The timing is interesting on this, right? Because I'm sure some of us think, well, gosh, you know, the Supreme Court ruling came down however many weeks ago it came down and the Trinity team thought, gosh, we better, we better say something about this. And in some ways, I think that the Supreme Court ruling helped hasten a, a dialogue that was public. But there's been a dialogue going on behind the scenes in this church for years. Um, I just want to tell you that I cannot count the number 
of pastoral conversations that I have had with same-sex attracted people who are all over the spectrum. Some people uh, struggling with and actively saying, I don't want to live in this way that I feel compelled to live, and others who are not struggling at all, who are just completely out and completely proud about it. And so for me and for Ashley and for our whole leadership team, for years and years and years, one of the things that we want you to know is that we have been in one-on-one dialogue with same-sex attracted men and women in our church, people that we love, people that we know, not people that we would point at and say those people, but people who are our people, people that we care about, people that we meet at this communion table and share life with, people that we worship with and go to community group with. And so I want you to know that for us, this conversation is a human conversation. We're not talking about ideology alone as a kind of disconnected, we're going to just live in the realm of either biblical theology or dogma or doctrine. We're talking about very human issues that affect the lives of people that we care about, people in this very room. So for us, it's very important for you to hear that this has been a humanized and and because of that, a tenderized conversation for us as a leadership team but we've also had to do some reading and learning i will confess to you that two years ago i had never read a book or really read very extensively about the subject of same-sex attraction Um, that is not my story today Um, i will give you a look into the way our leadership team approaches issues of all kinds we're not afraid of reading on both sides of an issue actually that's a deep desire of ours I'm always worried about pastoral leaders who just read the people that they know they're going to instinctively agree with uh, because sometimes that reveals a kind of fear or insecurity that you're going to hear something that's going to stump you or stress you or trouble you. And so what we do sometimes as Christians, right, is we huddle in these little homogenous groups where we're just around our own people. That hasn't been our journey as a leadership team here, not only in the conversations I alluded to, but in the books that we have been reading. And so we've had voices come into our dialogue, voices like James Brownson, who is an affirming writer, um, who's probably written the go-to book on the affirming side. And I think we have uh, some resources where you're going to get bibliography stuff if you're interested in that. Matthew Vines, who's a young evangelical who's written God and the Gay Christian, um, another affirming writer. Um, This recently I've read Eve Tushnet, who is a a celibate lesbian and a Roman Catholic and wrote a book called Gay and Catholic and um, very blessed by her writing. She's just really blessed me. Uh, Wesley Hill, another celibate gay man who is an Anglican uh, like you guys and is a, a beautiful thinker, writer, professor. He's written a number of books. Richard Hayes, who's an ethicist that we deeply respect, Uh, In his book, The Moral Vision of the New Testament, has written a chapter on same-sex attraction that has been very enlightening and helpful. Other voices like Ben Witherington, Stanley Grins, William Webb, a guy named Preston Sprinkle. Unfortunate name, and yet he's a smart fella. (laughs) And so we've read books, engaged reading blogs, engaged in countless conversations because we know that if we're going to stand somewhere and lead from somewhere. And that is our moral obligation. That is an obligation that is particular to us as leaders of this church. We need to be informed in how we get to where we get, right? So that that informs how we walk forward together. So I'm going to state to you, do you have something to say? You were breathing. It could just be your pregnancy. (laughs) Uh, I think just also, 
helpful to point out that beyond just like from an academic perspective, right, that this has also been um, a really like heartfelt and even emotional process for Chris and I and our leadership team. I mean, not only have we been engaging authors on the page, but with one another very openly, very honestly, and it's sometimes very uncomfortably. Um, just trying to be, get our language um, commiserate and faithful and challenge each other and provoke one another and um, invite the Holy Spirit in to um, help round out our thinking. And, and some of that has been um, profoundly uncomfortable. And yet at the end of, and not even, we're not at the end of that process, but I don't, two years ago, this kind of dialogue would not have been possible for Chris and I just because we didn't have the equity in our relationship to do that. And so I think maybe helpful for you all to know that um, we have done our best to bring the church into the office and have this conversation in a way that would honor the Lord, the text, um, and our church. So out of that um, has come, I think, this white paper that Chris was about to mention. Yeah, so we've, we've put a white paper together. And for those of you that don't know what a white paper is, um, I don't know why it's called a white paper, but I do know that it is a statement of um, belief for us, um, articulating where we are on this particular issue. And you'll find that that will come to you this week in your member email with the recap. Um, hopefully uh, you'll receive that here in the next couple of days. I'm going to just begin by essentially stating our position so that we're very clear at the beginning where we are and where we've landed as a church leadership team on this very important issue. And then the rest of our time is going to be a kind of articulation of how we got there and where we see God leading us as we go forward. At Trinity, we uphold, and I'm, I'm reading. Um, this will be the only time I read because I want to state verbatim where we are. And what we've written at Trinity, we uphold what is to con- what is considered to be a traditional position on marriage and homosexual behavior. This means that it is our conviction that the biblical testimony is unambiguously affirmative of heterosexual marriage as the biblical testimony is as God's desired means for human sexual expression and is univocally prohibitive regarding same sex sexual activity and expression as a deviation from that design. And so that is where we are. After all of this wrestling and reading and praying, it's very important for you to hear from us as leaders that we have come down in a place that is a traditional place. And we use the word traditional to essentially help locate. There's a lot of language that can be used, affirming and non-affirming. We're saying that we have come down in a place where we see the scriptural text of the Bible being prohibitive when it comes to the pursuit of same-sex sexual relationships and supportive when it comes to heterosexual marriage relationships. But I want to say a couple of things just right after saying that. By saying this, are we saying that you can't be gay and be Christian? That's not what we're saying. Um, We believe that salvation is a profession of faith and that sanctification is a process of renewal And that the Lord says, if you will call on me as a person who needs me, then I will meet you in that place and bring you into my family. And so by saying what we're saying regarding sexual ethics in the church, we're not saying that to be gay and even pursuant in and active in relationships of the same sex nature that you aren't Christian. Um, we're, We're actually just saying something else right now. We're also not saying that to be gay means that you somehow chose to be gay. Um, I think that there's been so much damage done in the church where Christians 
who don't struggle or deal with or have never experienced same-sex attraction would just think, well, clearly you could just choose something else. Why are you choosing this? So what we recognize is that there is a lot written, a lot to be said about these issues. But for us, we have a way of engaging ideas that are provocative or not, just ideas that are connected to theology. It's called a theological method. And so when the question first began to really come into the forefront for us, like how are we going to wrestle with this issue and are we going to revisit and maybe revise a view on an issue as a lot of people within the evangelical church have done, as Anglicans, we have this beautiful way of engaging ideas. It's scripture, tradition, and reason in that order, the holy texts, and then tradition, which is what Christians have at all times and all places believed, and then finally, reason, which is this idea of does it resonate, does it make sense on some level, this argument that we see in scripture and we see in tradition. And so for us, as we begin to engage theological method, it became clear that we were going to have to take the biblical text seriously. And there's not tons. Ashley's going to actually talk about that here in detail in, few, in a few moments to deal with biblical texts that we think are really relevant for our dialogue today. And yet we knew we had to begin with the biblical text. And so we started reading not just the few verses in the Bible that explicitly deal with same-sex sexual activity, but the overarching themes of Scripture, which Ashley will point to and highlight in a few moments. And I want to say to you that as we sit here today in front of you, I hear the words of Martin Luther, the reformer, when he stood at the Diet of Worms and he said, here I stand and I can do no other, God help me. I feel like that there's an issue here for us as a leadership team of submission to the scriptures. And Ashley alluded to this, and that we would be remiss if we didn't say that there are times in my Christian walk where I really wish that I could go somewhere that I just can't go because I'm bound by obedience to the Lord and to the sacred text of the Bible. And that's where we've landed here. And we've been very deliberate. And I can say just in affirmation of where Ashley's been, even at times the, the sense of um, submission and the sense of wrestling as a scriptural honoring people, that this has been a time for us to really come to terms in our own dialogue as a leadership team. Ashley and I are in front of you, but our leadership team of six has been wrestling and praying and at times even arguing about how we're going to engage these issues. And yet... One of the things that we really value here at this church, and I think we value it at this church because Christians ought always value, is this idea of mutual submission and submission to Scripture and wrestling things through and being as rigorous as we can. And so um, I say that in conjunction with the fact that we sit within a denominational family that has answered this question in our Anglican tribe um, not all Anglicans of all stripes have answered this question the same way, and yet our group, our tribe within the Anglican Church of North America has. But we didn't want to just hide behind that. And that was a commitment from us early on. We didn't want to just say, well, our denomination says it, so we're not even going to engage. Because I think that would be an act of cowardice, really, frankly, from us as leaders. So we rolled up our sleeves and continue to. I think it would be helpful if we're going to talk about theological method 
uh, scripture, tradition, and reason to, to park in the Bible for just a few moments so that we can give you a flyover of how we are going to and how we read the text. And so, Ashley, can you take us there just yeah. for a few moments? So also maybe helpful to just point out that this white paper that we're referring to, you will have access to. You know, we send out the member emails typically as a recap to you within a few days after having these meetings. We'll attach this white paper so that you have it. So don't feel like um, what I will be saying is an abbreviated version of what is in the white paper as well as a lot of what Chris is saying. And so don't feel like you've got to take notes Furiously, Some of that um, will be included for you. So um, one of those things that ought to go without saying and yet does not often go without saying, part of what Chris is getting at is that sense of being bound to the Bible. Um, for us, it's so helpful because um, it's important to point out that this is not just a way to defer and say, well, you know, because the Bible says and so it puts us off the hook and whatever, we really want to uphold as a value that the Bible is one means, and for us, a primary means through which God has envisioned and breathes and bring about, brings about his kingdom. So we have to hold on to it. It is necessary for our life together. So we've um, done some wrestling, and just, Marty, if you have the first slide. So these are, there are six, sometimes seven texts, or texts that are traditionally cited in reference to this issue. If you've done any reading about this whatsoever, you've probably come across these texts. The only one not included here is the Sodom and Gomorrah story, and it's not included on purpose, just because um, when it's not relevant, uh, we don't think to the conversation, so and potentially even harmful and distracting. So just, if you're making lists, don't include that text in your list. Um, there's a lot going on in that story um, that's uh, Sad and unfortunate, but centering around hospitality and not this issue in particular. So these are your go-to texts. Um, we want to point out, we're not going to read them. Um, you, please, look them up later and read them whenever you sit down or go back and study. But the reason we mention them is just so that you can know and see what they are. But So the, there are six texts listed here. Um, the Bible's a very big book. <laughs> there are a lot of verses in the Bible. Cherry-picking texts is never the best way to go about arriving at any conclusions on the Bible's perspective to any issue, this or any other. It's just not helpful. So while very important to know that the Bible does directly speak to this issue, um, the best way to go about wanting to know what the Bible says is to refer to the whole canon or the full witness of Scripture, um, which we don't love to do because, let's be honest, we're kind of lazy when it comes to that sort of thing. It's a very big book, and yet that's the thing that matters. So what is helpful to realize is that from Genesis 1 all the way through to Revelation, what is given as God's normative means for human sexuality is heterosexual unions or marriage. That is consistent from the beginning to the end. We just don't see at any point the Lord deviate from this design. And so what that says to us is a number of things. This is really important, one, to the Lord, because we talk a lot about covenant and union and marriage and fidelity. Those themes are overarching throughout the Bible. And God's primary gift or design or example of what that looks like, for reasons not given and not explained, um, at least totally, are heterosexual unions and marriage, at least for sexuality. There are a lot of examples of intimacy in the Bible, a lot of examples of same-sex intimacy in the Bible. It's just that those happen to happen or to occur within the confines of friendship. Human sexuality, when it is endorsed by God, occurs within the confines of marriage without exception in the Bible. Same-sex intimacy, friendship, partnership, always happens within, again, the confines of friendship. So that's important to know. 
We have, of all these texts, the one that is the most helpful, I think, if I were going to refer you to some place in the Bible to park and sit, it's Romans 1. So we thought it would be um, most helpful for us to just do a little bit of an exegetical exercise together, to sit with a text that is most often referred to, um, sometimes in helpful ways, sometimes in profoundly unhelpful ways, when it comes to this dialogue in particular. So we're actually just going to read it together as we would on a Sunday, and then we'll do some working through it. This is obviously Paul writing to the church in Rome. And he says this is kind of a long text, so bear with him. It's a big deal what he's saying. For the wrath of God, he says, is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and wickedness of those who by their wickedness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. Ever since the creation of the world, his eternal power and divine nature, invisible though they are, have been understood and seen through the things he's made. So they are without excuse. Who's they? Who's the they? This is a really important. All of us. All ungodliness. All humanity. So they, we, are without excuse. For though they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking, and their senseless minds were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools, and they exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling a mortal human being or birds or four-footed animals or reptiles. He's referring, obviously, to idolatry. Therefore, God gave them up in the lusts of their hearts to impurity. Again, who's them? All All of us. To the degrading of their bodies among themselves. Because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever. Amen. For this reason, God gave them up to degrading passions. Their women exchanged natural intercourse for unnatural. And in the same way, also the men giving up natural intercourse with women were consumed with passion for one another. Men committed shameful acts with men and received in their own persons the due penalty for their error. And since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind and to things that should not be done. They were filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, covetousness, malice, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, craftiness. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, haughty, boastful, inventors of evil, rebellious towards parents, foolish, faithless, heartless, Ruthless. At this point, he's just listing every horrible thing that he could possibly think of. They know God's decree. Who's they? Us. That those who practice such things deserve to die. Yet they not only do them, but even applaud others who practice them. Therefore, and it's an unfortunate conclusion to the end of that passage, because I guarantee you that Paul meant for 2-1 to be included with the rest of chapter 1. Therefore, you have no excuse, whoever you are, when you judge others. For in passing judgment on another, you condemn yourself because you judge, because you, the judge, are doing the very same things. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks be to God. So, the unhelpful reading of this text has been, see, there's Paul doesn't get much more negative or prohibitive of a view or perspective on homosexual behavior than Romans 1. And thus the conclusion or the implication that is drawn from that is that we are talking about solely or specifically in particular 
gays and lesbians are homosexual activity. That that's what Paul is referring to, that the they refers to those specifically who are same-sex attracted. And you can see why that is such a profoundly unhelpful reading of the text. Because it necessarily implies that that laundry list of sins that Paul gives in Romans 1 would refer to a specific group of people rather than the whole. God have mercy on us. So can we just say from the very beginning that is not how we're going to read or approach this text. Um, and I would encourage you, um, if that has been your reading, um, to just put it down. It has not, been, has not been helpful. Paul is not saying that homosexuality is a particularly abhorrent sin. What he is saying, rather brilliantly, is that homosexuality is a particularly vivid example of what is a human tendency to exchange our way or God's way for our way. You can see it with your eyes. It's a tendency that actually gets manifested physically, and therefore it serves as a really helpful and vivid example of what begins as a spiritual inclination or an emotional and moral tendency. Do you see that? So that's the point he wants to make. He's also trying very intentionally to work people up into a frenzy so that he can correct them on the back end, but we'll say um, more about that maybe in a second. Paul is addressing specifically... Um, our tendency towards biased judgment in Romans 1 and 2 because he's a pastor and that's what he um, feels like needs to be done and he's right both then and now. What he is saying though, um, the bigger picture of what he's referring to is Genesis 1 and 2 in particular, the fall, right? What he is saying without saying it or referring to is that the story of humankind from the beginning, what we have been doing is exchanging God's way for our way. So God forbids something and says you ought not to do this. And our tendency, for whatever reason, is to rush in and do the very thing that we're told not to do, right? It's the forbidden fruit. It's the age-old story. It's we always want what we can't have. And what Paul is saying is we have a tendency towards idolatry or rebellion. So at some point... We see this play out in Genesis 1 and 2, right? God gives us up, is the language that Paul uses in Romans 1. Paul gives us up to the desires of our heart, to a tendency towards rebellion and idolatry, to worship the creature rather than the creator. And that giving us up has produced in us a natural inclination to sin. All people. God have mercy on all of us. So we all share that. He then highlights this particular sin because for two reasons. One, as I mentioned, it's a vivid example of this. Secondly, he knows that for those who were Orthodox Jews, it was a particularly abhorrent one. So they were most likely to rank and measure and judge most harshly those engaged in this kind of behavior in a different way than they would have those who, for instance, were gossips or liars or whatever. They were ranking sin just like we tend to rank and measure sin now. So because Paul knows that Gentiles in particular, this was a a behavior that would have been most prevalent among Gentile audiences, Paul at the end does something so brilliant. After he lists off all of these sins, they're God-haters, they're liars, they're malicious, they're deceitful, and everybody's going, yes, they are, yes, they are. Paul does this really brilliant move at the end, and he says, therefore you who judge have no excuse Because you do the very same things. You, the judge, those of you who have made yourself the judge, 
are, he is saying, prone to the same kind of natural inclination towards sin. Super important to hear because this text alone provides what is a theological rationale for us in how we understand or think about our own sin, not just homosexuality in particular, but all of our tendencies and temptations towards sin. Does that make sense? It does. Okay. So there's Paul's explanation. Um, Also probably then helpful to say, but... Paul obviously didn't have a contemporary understanding of sexuality or sexual orientation, right? Paul is talking about specifically over and over behavior. And this is really, really important. Um, So that's the argument, right? Had Paul had a contemporary notion of sexual orientation that he would have maybe landed in a different place, drawn different conclusions about homosexual behavior, The problem with this for me and for us is that Paul actually assumes that we are all, in fact, hardwired for sin. So, in other words, if the argument is I am biologically predetermined to be attracted to members of my same sex and therefore ought not to be morally culpable for that behavior because I'm hardwired that way, Paul would say, well, yes, we're all the, the problem being hardwired for sin. So, is it a sin to be gay? No. But for Paul, over and over consistently, not just for him, but throughout the Bible, it's the actions that hold us morally culpable, mine and yours, whatever they may be. So that's why that's such an important, um, I think, uh, point for us to qualify and, and point out, because it helps me in managing, knowing whatever my tendency towards sin may be, Um, And they may always be there. Those desires, those inclinations towards sinful behavior, lying, gossip, whatever they may be, I may always, in some respects, hold those and have those and keep those. That is not, thanks be to God, an issue of salvation for me or for you or anyone else. Sanctification is God's promise to continually bring me and pull me and draw me towards holiness. For me, for my gay brother or sister, that's all of us together. So that really matters. What we do see, and we reference this in the beginning, is that the picture that God gives, given that it is the only example that he gives us for human sexuality, the only means that he provides, the only picture or design, given that it's heterosexual marriage, what we're then, the conclusions left to draw is that outside of heterosexual marriage, the Bible's strong testimony is towards disciplined abstinence. And that's also a really important point. That is not especially or particularly true for gay people. (laughs) That is true for all people. Um, There is a lot that needs to be said about marriage and the way that we have um, some of our flawed thinking and the flawed conclusions that we've drawn about marriage. Marriage is not our highest calling. Can we say that as a church? Amen. It is not our highest calling. It is also not a panacea for sin, which means if you struggle with sexual temptation, if you struggle with brokenness and sin, getting married, there's no guarantee that that's just going to solve your problems or work godliness in you. I wish it were. God knows if if it were only that easy, and yet it is not. Holiness is our highest calling. That's for all of us together. 
which means that for those of us who get married, we have a responsibility to bear with those who do not, and those who do not have a responsibility before the Lord to maintain and persevere in discipline abstinence the same way Paul did, Jesus did, and so many others, gay or straight. So those things are important. I want to just also add this, because a lot of people raise this as a concern. So, okay, that's what Paul has to say about homosexuality, um, but what about all the things that the Bible says about women and slaves? Um, You obviously take certain liberties with the text, given the fact that I'm not wearing a head covering right now. It means that there are obviously we take some some liberty or contextualize some readings of the text. And this is really super important. In the white paper, um, we quote from a book called um, Women, Slaves, and Homosexuality. And it's such a good book written by a guy named William Webb. And Webb's reading of, on this issue, while he takes a whole book to say it, we're going to simplify it for you in just one statement that we include in the white paper in here now so that you'll be able to hear it and then read it later. Basically, our position is the same as Webb's, is that there is consistently from the beginning of Scripture to the end what he calls a redemptive trajectory or a redemptive movement on behalf of women and slaves. Meaning that whenever the original culture tends to be particularly restrictive towards women and slaves, you see the Bible pushing out in an opposite or more permissive and progressive direction, advocating on behalf of women and slaves and even creating positions that would have been countercultural for them at the time. In fact, however, the opposite is true when it comes to homosexual behavior. What you see happening is more of a restrictive movement. So while there's this redemptive arc for women and slaves relative to the original culture, when it comes to homosexuality, even when the original culture was permissive and more accepting of same-sex behavior, you see the Bible moving in a more restrictive direction. So what that means for us is that there is a push from the beginning of Scripture all the way to the end with people like Deborah and Junia and others where you see the gospel working to liberate and promote and push against a tendency towards patriarchy and, and um, oppression. We don't see that happen when it comes to homosexual behavior. The testimony remains consistent from beginning to end. And so what that does then is raise questions for us like, okay, well, if God's redemptive design and intention for homosexual or same-sex relationships isn't there in Scripture, if it's not marriage, then what is it? And that is such an important question, one that we have probably not asked often enough. Um, If we can't get there when it comes to permissive same-sex relationships, what does the Bible provide? And I just... I'll end with just this quote from Eve Tushnet, who was the author that Chris mentioned a second ago. She writes in an article that she did for The Atlantic, something I think is so beautiful and helpful. She says, both opposite sex and same-sex love are used in the Bible as images of God's love. The opposite sex love is found in marriage, and the same-sex love is friendship. Both of these forms of love are considered real and beautiful. Neither is better than the other, but they are not interchangeable. Amen. And we would land in a similar place. Um, It's the second half of that statement that we probably haven't talked um, nearly enough about. Because for those who would be same-sex attracted and yet resist the opportunity to indulge in what we would were very common comforts for the rest of us, marriage has been such a gift. 
And yet, for those who would resist that in an attempt to pursue holiness, not only ought they, should they not be looked at or viewed at with suspicion in the church, but revered. And that's her point. And it's a very, very good one. Those who are maintaining holiness is the highest calling. If you are that person in this room or desirous to be that person in this room, just let it be said, God bless you, and we are so thankful for your example and have much to learn. Whether you are single, gay, or straight, thanks be to God for your pursuit of holiness and the sacrifice made. Amen. So we have to learn how to create spaces where we can walk together. And I'm aware that for many people in our wider culture, uh, the issue has been so painful. Um, I've been in church settings where more grace was extended to a murderer than to a same-sex attracted person. And a lot of us have maybe had experiences in church settings to where if you were to admit that you were gay, and by that what we're meaning is attracted to the same gender, then that Attraction alone and the admission of it for many people meant being ostracized from community. It meant being, tra- being brought into situations where people would try to deprogram or to cure you and make you ex-gay. And we just want to be very clear about the fact that the data is in on that experiment and it did not go well. Um, the largest ex-gay organization in the world closed their doors a couple of years ago and said, this has been abject failure for the most part. We have not been successful in making people heterosexual. So the simple admission of same-sex attraction, I think, for many people has been so terrifying that it hasn't happened until relatively recently. And I, I just want to say I think that is to our shame. I think that is to our shame in the church because we've not created these safe spaces. And what we've really not done is we've not created an expectation that we want to participate in community and in worship with people who are coming from all different kinds of places. And so I'm going to just say I get the fact, we get the fact that not all of us in this room agree with what Ashley and I just said. And we're under no illusion that this is one of those things where you're going to hear from the professional Christians on this and you're going to just automatically think, well, that makes perfect sense. We do think it makes some real sense and would love for you to wrestle with it. Our hope is that we have enough equity here in a membership community to have conversations that will make us think. And I find it very interesting that even our passages over the last two weeks here at the church from John 6 are about these provoking even unnerving conversations that Jesus has with his followers as he calls us to get past nicety and to work on what it is that really matters. And so for us at this church, we have always said, and we'll continue to say that we are a centered set. Now, if you look at the way churches work all over the world, you've got some churches like the Amish church that function as a bound set, right? Like if you are wearing the wrong kind of shirt or the buckles on your shoes, you're out. If you have a cell phone, out. There are a lot of churches that operate on what people call a fuzzy set. So there are boundaries where you're in or out, but it's a little unclear. It can kind of be down to what the pastor or pastors ate for lunch that day. You're kind of in, you're out, which creates a lot of insecurity, creates a lot of ambiguity. And what that does, and this has been the normative expression of the church in large, is it causes people who feel like they might be in an iffy place to just sort of retreat into a place of quiet hiding. 
what we long to be at this church and fail regularly, but our longing is to be a centered set, which is to say the center of this bullseye is the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you are moving toward him, we want to worship with you. We want to meet you at this table. We want to discuss the Bible in community groups. We want to roll up our, our sleeves in service. We want to be able to live life together because if we're moving toward Jesus, then we can trust that if I'm moving toward Jesus and you're moving toward Jesus, that there's a space for us to find common ground and to say we're going to work on what needs to be worked on. Now, that is easy to say. It's challenging to do. And it's not just challenging in the arena of same-sex attraction. This is challenging because we have all these issues that tend to trip us up, right? We don't agree on women in ministry. I mean, some of you find Ashley's presence in front of you right now to be a reprehensible reality. But I'm pregnant and so cute. But she is pregnant. And we're really happy about that because she is so cute. We don't agree on baptism. Some of you are going to, God forbid, baptize your babies in a couple of weeks. And some of you think that is the worst idea ever. We're going to bless our baby, which is like almost like baptism, but nobody's going to get wet. And so we don't agree and we say, let's come together and let's wrestle through because if we're moving toward Jesus, we can trust God to help us as we get closer and closer. So I want to say something very clear right now. If you are gay, abstinent, or pursuant, or in romantic relationship, sexual relationship, we welcome you into this church. We want to eat from the communion table. We want to have you and participate with you and everybody else in community groups and classes and opportunities to participate together in the life of the church. And what I just said in particular because of the conversation we're having is about same-sex attracted and same-sex pursuant people, but that's true across the board at this church. Y'all, we're coming from all points of the map. And one of the reasons why I love this church is that we can meet here in a kind of outer courts experience and say, come Holy Spirit, I would rather us be here and in dialogue together than not in relationship and dialogue at all. And so this is a place where we're saying we want people to participate in the life of the church. But I would be naive and it would be inappropriate if I didn't say there are going to be significant limitations and boundaries when it comes to leadership in the church. And here's the reality, and this is where it's just hard, y'all. Because if we're articulating a traditional viewpoint on this issue, and we have, and we feel a sense of the peace of the Spirit about that after working and wrestling, then we would be remiss not to say at some point there's a fence, at some point there's a boundary. And that's where the conversation becomes really difficult. And I'm going to say to you tonight, we're not here tonight, we're not prepared to draw fence boundaries and start pointing to all the nuance and say, you can do this, you can't do this, you can be here, you can't be here. But I think it would be unfair and unkind if I didn't say that for leadership, and this is why on a ton of issues, the further into leadership you go at this church or any church that's minding their P's and Q's in any significant way, the, the adage that how can two walk together unless they be agreed becomes more and more significant the more the spiritual leadership role comes into play. And that's not because of singling something out. I think Ashley makes the point brilliantly. This is an issue for us of theological alignment the further into the life of the church you get. So is there unlimited sense of participation in the life of the church? There is a sense of yes I think Jesus was all about saying, I want to walk alongside and include this, the sick who need a doctor. And that's all of us, right? Romans 1 makes that clear. 
But when it comes down to leadership, I think that we have to be honest about the fact that there are going to be these barriers and boundaries because we are called by God to steward the life of our church when it comes to leadership. And there's a sense of needing congruency. Now, that doesn't mean that for you to be a member in this church and for us in this room to say we're in or we're out based on whether you agree with everything that Ashley and I are saying right now. Here's what I hope. My hope is that if you're a member and a leader, that you would not um, try to undermine or subvert through divisiveness the stuff that we're saying right here at the front. But can we disagree with a sense of charity and grace saying we want to walk this together knowing that this is a very tense and very complex issue? I surely hope so. It's one of the reasons why we sang at the beginning was to remember, right? We work this stuff out within the context of worship. So we're not asking for uniformity in terms of everybody seeing everything exactly the same way. But what we are admitting is that we've been called by God to lead this church. And that when it comes down to leadership community, we have to do that with as much humility and courage as God will give us. And that's going to mean maybe even for some of you when we have subsequent conversations that you're going to come to us and say, well, what do we do about this? And I just want to say our commitment to you is toward transparency and humility and a process, a conversation. I think these things are best done in the context of dialogue and conversation. And that's our heartbeat. And that's what we're saying we're offering. And that's what we're asking from you is that we would, those of us who can say, I think we can walk together, that we would work out how to walk together as graciously as we can. Ashley, do you have anything else there before we get into some issues of civility? Because I think it's connected. No. So civility is a big Which is rare, a but big I actually one. don't. Civility is a big issue for, for me and for us uh, because I think that it's really easy right now to be mean, um, not just on the issue of, of gay marriage or same-sex attraction, but just in general. I think Facebook has really allowed us to be um, just asses, frankly, a lot of the time with, with little to no impunity. I mean, we can just say what we want to say, and we just forget that there are people on both sides of this conversation um, one of the blogs that we would commend to you is a blog called uh, the Spiritual Friendship Blog. Um, it's led by a number of, um, a, a large number actually, of uh, gay and lesbian um, Christians who um, are walking out this road of disciplined abstinence. It's a beautiful, very thoughtful um, kind of convergence of thinking. And I was reading last week a guy named Matt Jones, who I, I really like to read him uh, from time to time, and he, he posted a, a blog uh, article with a title called the, the Luxury of Division. And he made a couple of points that I think were really helpful and, and actually broke my heart because I feel like our hearts need to be broken. So in the, in the aftermath of the Supreme Court uh, ruling, we have seen in a lot of forums uh, Christians uh, really take one another on, full on, in, in public forums and call one another out. Um, I was just thinking recently... Um, Julie Rogers, who has just been literally destroyed by evangelical Christians. Um, I happen to, to be convinced that woman loves Jesus like crazy and is actually really smart and is going to bear fruit in her ministry. And because she was in one camp and is kind of easing into this sort of uh, place of I might be open to supportive of the, the gay marriage or same-sex relationships, she has had a lot of people just like literally just full-on assault. And this guy, who is a celibate gay man and a friend of hers, wrote this article, The Luxury of Dis Division, really about 
Julie and about what's happened with Julie. And this is one thing that he says, and I would encourage you to read the, the blog post. He says, we've forgotten that we as humans belong to one another. And I don't know what to do about that except grieve. He says, but actually, maybe that's the appropriate response. Maybe that's the first step to a more honest witness. Grief, at least, begins with an acknowledgement that people have been wounded. Relationships have been ruptured. Communities have often been sources of pain and stigma. And this is a guy upholding an orthodox viewpoint on this issue. So some of us even right away are like, oh, our liberal bells are ringing. This guy's not one of those. He says, lament beholds the broken world as it is and forces us to consider how we might enter into that brokenness, how we might need to change to become more effective agents of healing and redemption. And this, I think, he says, clears a small space in which empathy can take root and grow into friendship or community with people different than us. I remember my friendship uh, that I made with a man in our neighborhood um, just about seven months ago, uh, which... Um, I buried him about a month ago. He was um, sick and he was dying um, of cancer. And he was also a man in a 25-year committed relationship to a same-sex partner living in our neighborhood. And he came to me and he just said, I want to I meet with the pastor because I live down the road. And a, a number of people, a number of you in this room had been neighbors and really close to this guy. And he had seen Christians being Christian. And he thought, I'd like to meet. A priest. Um, he had not been in church for a long, long time. I had no idea what he was going to ask for when I walked up to his door. I have to admit, I was petrified because I thought, "Are we going to? What are we? What are we going to do here?" And I watched him over seven months go from agnostic to utterly beautifully saved, and he's with Jesus now and knows more about Jesus than I will know this side of eternity because he came to know him. And I think that if we don't think about the reality of how to be Christian first, we may miss opportunities for people to come to know and experience a credible witness of Jesus. And so what I want to ask you to do, and I know this is hard, and it's hard because the issue has been politicized, and I just want to say I believe that at this church, God has called us to transcend the low-hanging fruit of just stumping an issue and being mean-spirited and dismissive about it. There are very intelligent people, like the two sitting in front of you, brilliant, I dare say, who have wrestled and reasoned and prayed and argued and have come down in a place of saying, this is where we are, and there's not hate in it, there's not fear in it. This is where we are, and we can't be anywhere other than we are. We're bound to this worldview that we've thought through and wrestled through and embraced with joy. Because we believe that if God is good, there has to be good for us to pursue, even in the darkness and messiness of a situation like this. So don't dismiss us. And my commitment to the person sitting on the far other end of the spectrum is to not dismiss you. To listen and even respect differences and to wrestle through if we both love Jesus and we can listen to one another, maybe we could model a kind of disagreement that's better than what we're seeing on offer out in the wide world where people just write one another off first thing, just like that. We're going to be and are settled on this issue theologically. And even as a leadership culture, we're settled on how we're going to proceed. And yet that doesn't mean we're going to stop loving. 
It doesn't mean we're not going to stop leading with the kind of courage that's not afraid of contamination. That's not afraid of moving into spaces where life gets real, right? I think Jesus modeled that. I don't think Jesus modeled that. I know that Jesus modeled that. Jesus hung out at houses and with people that didn't see the world the way that he saw the world. He even hung out with people that he grieved over and prayed for because he wanted to be near them and with them. If we can put a flag in the ground to be civil, I thoughtful, but civil, I think we're going to start a process that might lead us to some fruitful conversation and dialogue as a church community. Do you have something else there? So if somebody asks you to bake a cake... Just bake a cake in Jesus' name. Just bless your neighbors. Be kind to the people who love you and love them back the way that Jesus would. He was able with peace in his heart to move into situations that probably made him at least theologically uncomfortable, knowing that he did not have to fear contamination from sin or being compromised in his perspective because he had matured into holiness enough to be able to engage with people who disagreed with him. That is the same call that we have. I want to be comfortable enough in my own skin to sit with people who don't agree with me and yet love them the way that Jesus modeled and called me to love them. That's what we do. Yeah, it is. Um, He is not, uh, I don't know if you're going to, I don't know where we are on the I points. <laughs> but for like nobody has to be, you've not been called by God, for instance, to be an evangelist for the traditionalist perspective on this. So when you see your friends making comments that you don't agree with on Facebook, if find an opportunity that will never be Facebook. <laughs> ever. Never. Will never work for you. Take someone you love to coffee if you know them well enough to take them to coffee and it not be weird do not invite strangers to coffee to talk about this it will never go well you have failed before you have started if someone you love holds a different perspective on this issue then you ought to have the kind of friendship that can bear disagreement and sit down with one another break bread and talk about something within the safety of your relationship but if you don't don't if you don't and, know. and I mean, we mean that with sincerity because I think some of us in this room are so conscientious in our faith that we feel a sense of burden and it's confusing, right? Because we think, should I be doing something bold and provocative? I, I want to read something from Eve Tushnet because I, I love her. I, she's my favorite writer on this, on this uh, subject and really maybe the subject of friendship that I've come across in a long, long time. I've been quite moved by her. She says this very clearly. She says, if you are unsure how a person would react to your opening a conversation about what Jesus thinks of the gays, and as one, she's joking about the use of that word in the way she said it, I would strongly suggest not opening that conversation. If you're wondering, don't do it. Christians guilt trip ourselves into being awful toward our friends because we think that we need to be a witness for the gospel. She says, I've done that. It ends up being harassment for Jesus. Consider taking a leaf from the AA handbook and focusing on attraction, not promotion. Don't push God. But that doesn't mean, she says, that we should be unwilling and refuse to be honest about our convictions and our beliefs when we are asked. 
There's a difference, right? Unsolicited versus solicited opinion. Those are very different. And social media has helped us forget the difference. Not everybody really cares about what you think or what you ate for lunch. And yet Facebook deceives us into thinking that our opinions somehow need to be offered on any number of issues. None and, of us care what you and, had and for frankly, lunch. And frankly, I mean, some of us should lose our Facebook privileges. If I, I'm working that out. I'm trying to find a way to, to do that. So that we can just unpeople un people on Facebook. Not as humans, but just on Facebook. She says this. I'm going to read one more thing. If your friends or family members insist to you who are affirming either gay or, um, or someone in your family or your relationship who is, um, who is gay and pursuant of a marriage situation imminently. She says if they insist that simply upholding the faith, belief your belief on marriage and sexuality make you hateful or bigoted, that isn't something you should compromise on. You can't change who you are and what you believe just because of pressure. And she says they shouldn't ask you to do that. But if they're simply asking you not to bring up sexual morality at Thanksgiving when they say their partner's coming to dinner, she says, then I would just thank them for the sweet potatoes. Like, just be at dinner. Just thank them for the sweet potatoes. And I think there's really good advice from her on that of just letting the pressure come off some of us to not have to be an apologist for this when you're not being invited into those conversations. Hold the view that God's given you to hold, but don't push. Because I think we lose relationship when we push. And we need to be wise and thoughtful and respectful about that. So, Chris... Would you officiate a gay wedding? I would not. And our leadership team, again, going back to where um, the rubber hits the road here, as pastors of this church, we are not released by the Lord to officiate, and we will not be officiating gay weddings. And that's important for us to say that just as definitively as we just did. I will say this, and this can be and will maybe be provocative for some of us in the room. We see that there is a significant difference between civil union and the benefit that that affords Americans in our country and this kind of sacramental-esque, as Anglicans, this sacramental idea of a marriage ceremony as a religious ceremony. I am and have been in support of civil unions for a while, for a long time actually, because I think we're having an American civil liberties conversation there. I believe that people ought to decide who goes on their health insurance and their end-of-life decision-making. People have earned that right simply by living in a country that, thanks be to God, we have the freedom to talk about those things and to make those decisions. And so that is, I think, something that we should, if we can, be able to celebrate and say, thank God that people have the decision and the power to make decisions that are empowered decisions. And yet that's not the same thing as a Christian religious marriage ceremony. While we will support the one, we cannot participate in the other as leaders, as officiants. And that's because we believe rightly that marriages always belong to the church. This word and this institution and this idea it was an idea that was birthed in and nurtured in the body of Christ, in the church, that was analogous and symbolic of Jesus' love for the church. This idea that he brings two very other people into one place and says, you're going to model and image something beautiful about me. And so while the civil benefits that they afford may be the same, marriage and civil unions are not in fact the same. And I think that there's room for us to 
affirm and celebrate the one and yet be very honest and humble about where we stand on the other as leaders. Now that opens up the next question. Should I go to a gay wedding? I want to say one thing and then I want you to say another thing. Does that sound fair? What if you take my thing? Well, you just have to trust me. (laughs) Jesus spent most of his time in places where people were not doing things that he knew were God's best. And he did that, even the things that grieved him, because his heart was to engage and love well, and he did not fear contamination or compromise. And so I think that if you can go to a friend or a family member's wedding, a colleague, and it not violate your conscience, then I would encourage you to go. If it does violate your conscience, then don't. But be humble and loving and honest about what it is that you can and can't do. Ashley, you have something to say? I mean, can we... I think what we've lost is the art of being humble and honest at the same time, right? We're so afraid to say, this makes me uncomfortable. I'd love to talk to you about that. Can you bear with me while I work out how I feel and think? Um, why is that so bad and so hard for us to say to each other? You need friends to whom you can say that kind of thing to. Um, and then find trusted people to think through things with you and feel through things with you. It will take more of us being honest and brave and expressing our convictions in order to turn the tide on this thing. It's like we all feel like we have to be settled and very articulate and very informed. Yes, I will go to your gay wedding. Here's why. Because in Matthew 18, verse 4, Jesus, and you don't have to say all that. And if you can't go, just say, I love you. I want God's best for you. This, I feel conflicted, and I want you to have the wedding day that you hope for and want. And so me and my confliction are going to stay at home and just be able to have that with each other. Again, in her uh, book, Tushnet says to a friend in this very same, uh, same line of conversation about whether or not she would go to her wedding, Um, She says, look, by inviting me to attend this ceremony, you're asking me to support your relationship. And this is really important. She says, I do support the love and care that you show one another, and I always will. That's something that I am prepared to promise. Because not every aspect of a relationship is inappropriate. There is real goodness. But what she says is, I don't support the sexual side of your relationship. It's a matter of my faith, and it isn't something I'm likely to change my mind on. But if support for your love and your relationship is enough, then I'm there. And there's a real bravery that that requires. And coming from someone who is in Eve's position, I think that there's weight to her words of saying, I support your relationship. There are parts of this relationship I can't get on board with. And I think sometimes if we have the kinds of intimate connection with someone where that conversation can happen, there can be real life there. If you don't have that equity, by all means, please don't say those things. But if you do, I think it could be really redemptive. So is there a way forward for us? Which, let's be honest, that's been the thing that we have not heard nearly enough 
uh, enough about, right? So there has been, we just want to own um, publicly, and then we reiterate it again in our paper, there has been historically an overemphasis placed on marriage. We alluded to that in the beginning, but just need to say it emphatically clear. It's like, well, if you are struggling with sexual temptation, we're all just going to hope and pray that you can get married. And if you can't get married, just pray harder. And there's sin there. And there is so much sin there because the person who is struggling in their sexual temptation is looking at you, who is most likely heterosexual and married, and saying, you have got to be kidding me. Is that the best that you can do? And by which we mean, is that the best that God can do? And the answer is no. Um, There has to be, and there is emphatically, speaking of the Bible's full witness and testimony, from beginning to end, what the Bible calls for among God's people is costly hospitality and friendship. Over and over and over again, God says to those who are comfortable and privileged, you open wide your doors and you extend your dinner table. You make family more than these people who do not know me. You make it mean more than that. Give people a redeemed vision of family. And if, church, we have not done a great job of that, either here or in other places. And that's where we have felt, I think, as a leadership team, pushed out by the Lord and challenged by him, honestly, to do a better job. Yeah, I think that there's a real... um... When I read recently Wesley Hill's book, Spiritual Friendships, I found myself um, just moved and undone at, at times in some public places because I was reading in coffee shops. I mean, there, there's so much here, and I would encourage you, if you're, if you're wanting to, to explore friendship, the, these two books, which will be on, on our resource list, are really helpful. Just put a... Like another sheet of paper over the cover? Yeah, I mean, this one was interesting at the coffee shop because, you know, people wonder what you're reading. No, it's mostly this one I'm referring to. It's the the embrace. the worst cover page. There is a sense in which I think we as Christians have, um, we have created spaces, vacuums, where loneliness becomes... um, dangerous and painful and not just for same-sex attracted people just people and and we've done that because we have made idols and i think what ashley's getting at is something that we have sensed and continue to sense that the lord is calling us to repentance as leaders for creating an idol out of marriage and family that has pushed others into spaces of feeling like they're not enough and i just want to say to you that I am deeply sorry and I repent for that. That I feel like there are places where I have worshipped at that idol and that altar of saying this is just the way it is. And all the while minimizing and excluding the reality that so many of us live in. Lauren Winter in one of her books calls it the lonely of the loneliness of the ordinary. Just this reality that There are situations where people who do not have a marriage partner experience reality in a way that I think a lot of people who are married just choose to or just are unable to see or perceive or appreciate. And some of what Ashley's getting at here is something that we feel, as impractical as it may sound, that God is calling us at this church to pursue and extol 
friendship and hospitality in a way that is going to make space for diverse people to come together and feel like they belong together, not as a charity case, not as an official thing, but creating space around our tables, creating space at our holidays, creating space in our homes for people who might not naturally connect with one another. There's a kind of radical hospitality that I think the Lord is calling us to engage that's going to cost us. And a mutual blessing to be had. Yes in that kind of extension of hospitality. And that may be some of what we're experiencing culturally. Maybe the reason this has become such a heightened issue in the church is because the Lord pointing to what has been a deficit for us when it comes to hospitality. Um, If there were more of us willing to extend and open the boundaries of our family and our homes, we would be seeing people bear fruit in the midst of their singleness. Perhaps is what the New Testament is getting at. Um, Jesus didn't have a wife. He had a Lazarus. Paul did not have a wife. He had Priscilla and Aquila. He had a family to go home to, to be with. Um, We need to do a better job of not only being challenged by, uh, by the thought or idea of hospitality, but also hopeful and expectant of the mutual blessing that can come when we extend and open up the boundaries of our family. We're missing out on something when we exclude one another. It's mutual, and I think you're touching on something really important because there's a sense of condescension that I think creeps into the church. Like, well, we just need to marry people here. Well, we just need to give more. And what Ashley's touching on is so interesting. And I I was so moved when I read uh, Wesley Hill because as a young, as a a man now who is a, a, a fully orbed adult but has been gay since he could remember He makes a point that I think is really worth us hearing. He says, maybe gay people have a unique capacity for friendship that we need to receive from. This is the point he's making as a gay person. And what he said was so interesting to me, and it really opened my eyes. He said, as a man learning how to deal with complex emotions in the sense that I'm typically attracted to other men, I learned much earlier on how to differentiate from some of those feelings and embrace friendship and push through some of that ambiguity and actually engage real friendship in a way that a lot of heterosexual people never do with the opposite sex. It's always a little bit weird. There's always that little weirdness of sexual tension that comes. And so what Wesley Hill said, and this was something that I'm trying to receive into my soul as a Christian, as a heterosexual Christian man, is that maybe my same-sex attracted friends have something of unique and intrinsic value to give to me in the arena of the pursuit of friendship if I can hear from them. And that's where there is a kind of mutual blessing Because what we tend to do as Americans or Westerners is we think that everyone who's not like us is going to somehow bleed on us or take from us or be a drain to us. And what Hill and others are saying is maybe there is a unique gift here. And C.S. Lewis says in his book, The Four Loves, he says, To the ancients, friendship seemed the happiest and most fully human of all loves, the crown of life and the school of virtue. The modern world, in comparison, ignores it. Most of us, as we grow older, who are heterosexual and find ourselves in nuclear family, family situations, marriage situations, begin to diminish friendship to the point that it's almost non-existent. Our single friends, we need to come together and begin to teach one another about what we can teach each other. But that will never happen if we don't listen and receive mutual blessing and benefit from each other. And we are not good at this, y'all. 
but maybe there's a place where we can begin to put flags in the ground and have the conversations. And I think that's where we are. I think that's the moment that we're occupying right now as a church. And you get to decide whether you're going to stand in this same moment with us and occupy it in the same way. But that's our heart posture, and it's something that I really hope we can begin to see growth in the arena of real hospitality. So in sum, if you're praying for us and for our church or if you're a part of this church, um, I feel, I think Chris feels, our team feels, prompted by the Lord um, to ask for a vision and a renewed vision of intentional hospitality and emotionally intimate even same-sex friendships in a way that we are not currently experiencing them. So if we can just leave this place and call and ask for God's help and giving us a vision for those two things, um, as a church, we will make a better way forward. Um, and we'll do it prayerfully yeah. and in humility before one another and before the Lord. That's our hope. Yeah. And I would say to that end that one thing that we need to hear, and I grew up in a, in a church culture where every same-sex attracted person who was known every relationship that he or she pursued of the same gender was viewed under through a lens of suspicion. Well, I wonder if they're doing something they shouldn't do. And every writer that we've come across on the conservative traditional side of this dialogue who is also same-sex attracted says that sins born of loneliness and isolation are far more dangerous and devastating than sins that could emerge within community and companionship. And this is people who are not promoting sex between same-sex people. But they're saying loneliness has been devastating. So is there a way for us to extol friendship in a way that may at times be messy and may at times make some of us feel, oh no, what if they do something they shouldn't do? I think the thing that we need to be willing to say is, is friendship worth us pushing into as a diverse people? And I think the answer is yes. While we call people to holiness, I don't think that we need to call people to isolation. And that's something that we need to address together as a community who seeks to grow in the arena of hospitality. So we've got resources for you. This email that we said we're going to be sending out at the end of the week is probably going to have this audio file and a white paper, this, this document that Ashley and I have referenced. I want you to be aware of the fact that not everybody in our community has had access to this conversation tonight. So if you're specifically in community groups, it might not be the best thing for you to launch into a full-blown discussion about something that two-thirds of your group may have no idea is even happening. Let's give people some time to catch up before we do this. Um, And so I think that there's a sense in which you are um, the privileged few that we're inviting into this with fear and trembling. We're saying let's talk it out. Let's wrestle it out. And first, we felt like you needed to hear where our hearts were. On the back of this sheet that you have, we have notes and questions. We're not afraid to hear from you on this. We, we actually want to hear from our leadership and membership community. And we don't want um, to just have radio silence because that's not what Life Together is about, right? And so while we have articulated our heart, and I hope you've heard our heart on this, I hope that you feel the the, the vibe under the words even, that we really want to walk this thing out and we want to hold to the place God has us and yet we want to walk like Jesus would walk. We want to hear from you. We want to participate with you. Um, our, our way of processing and sifting through and responding, it may take us some time, but I want you to know that this is, this is meaningful for us to receive 
uh, feedback and perspective. Do you have anything to say before? Just that it may take us a few days to get the recap email out to you, which will include this document in an audio file. So, um, and we also just want to say if there are people that you know who could benefit from sharing either of those, not to feel weird or reluctant to do that, that we're happy yeah. for you to, to share what we've put out. We just, um, for an initial conversation, needs to happen within the context of our membership. Yeah. And yet those resources are yours once they go into your hands. Yeah, with joy. Holy Spirit, we ask you for grace. God, it's been an hour and a half of talking and a lot of stuff to think through. And we acknowledge, Lord, that you have called us to uh, wrestle and to pray and to work hard to be the body of Christ here at Trinity. And so we ask you now for grace to think clearly and to pray clearly. And I pray, God, that as the dust settles and these words come and, and even the ambiguity around, well, what does it mean, Lord, to live life together, God? I pray that we would put that in front of you, knowing that we sit in a place, a settled place, theologically, and yet we know that we're called to follow you, Jesus, into the highways and byways. So we ask you to empower us to do that. Lord, I pray that you would liberate every man and woman in this room who has felt pressure on either end of this dialogue to be a, a loud apologist for the affirming or the traditional side. I pray that you would let us be still and small and to listen to you and try to love people well, even as we stand where God's called us to stand. Help us, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.